You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Attention back to Matthew 6. We come to verse 12 this morning. We'll just read verse 12. Slightly different than the way we've memorized it. Matthew 6, verse 12, Jesus says, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you'd be pleased to instruct us from your word. Father, your word is living and active. Father, we pray that, Lord, you would open up your word to our hearts. Open up our hearts and minds, O Lord, to your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We continue in our study on prayer and our study of what the church has historically called the Lord's Prayer. And we come this morning to the uh, fifth petition, if you will. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And a few, uh, just a couple of general observations. Here we notice there's both the vertical element here as well as a horizontal um, vertical element, meaning um, in the first half, we're asking the Lord as debtors to forgive us. In the second half, we are uh, forgiving those who are our debtors. So you have both a vertical element as well as a horizontal element. Another observation that's really important for us to make is this is not justification that's in view right here. Uh, I don't know if anyone has thought that through or not. That thought may have never occurred to anyone. And let me clarify just what I'm talking about. I mean, some of you probably know exactly uh, what I'm saying here, but uh, this is not somebody coming to the Lord and confessing their sins for the first time and uh, having this transfer, if you will, of their sins going to Christ and Christ's righteousness being applied to them, which happens initially in justification. When we put our faith and our trust in Christ Jesus uh, savingly in that moment in time, God declares us righteous. He can declare us righteous only because of the righteousness of Christ. Our sins go to the Lord, to, to Jesus. They're, they're um, expunged on the cross, and Christ's righteousness goes to us. You can think of my... St- my drawing the cross and the stick figure. Most of us, I think, have seen that. Uh, and you have that double, uh, it's W imp- imputation, if you will, that exchange that takes place. That's not what's in view here. Uh, it's important that we understand that. Now, how can I say that's not what's in view here? Let's think back to the preface. It was a couple of months ago when we were looking at the preface. But Jesus teaches us to pray what? Our Father. And you remember the discussion that father in this sense is not father in the sense of father as creator. No, it's father in the sense of father as adoptive father. We can think of the first chapter of John's gospel. To those who received Christ, they were given the right to what? Become children of God. And it is these who can say in prayer, our Father who art in heaven. But secondly, just from the context of the verse itself, you can see there's a habit in this verse uh, that is, uh, as we think about it vertically, 
And we'll talk about it vertically briefly this morning. As we think about it vertically, Lord, forgive me as a sinner, as I have also forgiven those who have sinned against me. You can see there's a habit, there's this habit of forgiveness that's taking place, which I want to look at this morning. Um, this is something that's been going on. Um, so uh, we don't want to see this as uh, justification. No, what we want to see this is life is messy as we go through this life. You know, the moment that we put our faith and our trust in, in Christ, we're not made perfect right there on the spot, are we? Um, at least I hope none of us are the obvious opinion that we become perfect on the spot. Um, I, I, Tammy wouldn't allow that. <laughs> Uh, hardly the case. There is a remnant of sin that continues to, to, to um, live in our hearts, isn't there? And that's the battle. It's the battle that we're all so familiar with. And as we return to John's gospel, when we go to, back to John 13, uh, that, that's one of the great lessons of that is as we go through this life, we're going to get dirty. And um, this is what's in view here and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Another observation is notice that Jesus is referring to sin as debt. Uh, he's putting sin in economic terms here. And uh, we, could, we could say trespasses, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So be nothing wrong with that. But, but Jesus is putting this into economic terms, and I think we'll do well to leave it that way. And why do I think that? Well, it helps us to come into terms with the weight. You know, I'm going to throw a um, hypothetical out here. Imagine, hypothetically, that we have a man who has lived 90 years and who is yet, con uh, yet to uh, commit one single sin. Along comes his 91st birthday. And in celebrating his 91st birthday, he entertains a sinful, lustful thought. What happens to this man at that point in time? In our hypothetical example, this man is now, even though he has lived 90 years without sin, and of course this is hypothetical, because we're not even talking about original sin, we're not talking about uh, being born into sin, we're going to set that aside just for a hypothetical, just for illustration. He's lived 90 years, hasn't had a single sin in thought, word, or deed, but then on his 91st birthday, he has and commits a sin. This sin disqualifies him from heaven. And I think when we think about that in that sense, we begin to understand how costly one single sin is. How costly is this sin? We begin to see the weight of that sin, don't we? as we're expressing it in economic terms, what does this sin cost? It's costing him eternity. It's just one sin. Just one sin. Now, we can go a step further than that, and we don't have to get hypothetical with the step as we go a step further. How grievous must that single sin be to righteousness if that single sin would disqualify us from heaven? It's hard for us to come to terms with this because we're sinners. Our conscience is smeared and seared to a certain degree, and we don't think a sin, listen, a lustful thought, that's not no big deal. Whoa, wait a second. In heavenly categories, it's huge. It's huge. 
So we begin to see the weight of this, and I think we ought to leave this as debts and debtors because it brings us right to the gospel. It brings us right to the gospel. We have the gospel in verse 12. Sometimes people say, well, there's no gospel in the Sermon on the Mount. Really? There's a gospel here. Lord, forgive us our debts. How are these debts, how are these debts to be forgiven? Well, they're paid by the surety. That's another economic term that's used in the old King James translation of Hebrews 7.22. Our modern translators often use the word guarantor. Now, both are somewhat strange terms to us, perhaps, but a surety is one who picks up the tab. I mean, every time we ask the Lord to forgive us our sins, there's a bill that has to be paid. That's why I think we ought to leave this in as debts and debtors. There's a bill that has to be paid. So when we're saying we're basically coming to the Lord, we're coming to Him with a bill that needs to be paid. Oh, Lord, will you pick up the tab on this bill? And of course, Jesus is, Jesus is ready always to pick that up, isn't He? In one sense, we know that the moment we put our faith and our trust in Christ Jesus, our sins, past, present, and future are picked up. Why? Because they've been paid for by Christ. That's why. Now, as we walk through life and we commit these particular sins, and it's, it's good to confess the particular sins. Now, rather than, it's good to make a general comment because we don't even know all the ways we've sinned against God. But also, at the end of the day, if there's something nagging on us, it's good to pray for that particular sin. Lord, I have committed X. This is what I've done. I've committed X. And it's good to uh, take up this particular sin. But we only have forgiveness because Christ has paid the debt, haven't we? And there's the gospel, isn't it? There's the gospel. Now, I talk about these things all the time. One of the things I don't talk about enough, and I know I don't talk about it enough, and this reminds me, is the horizontal element. We have a horizontal element that Jesus is bringing here as well, don't we? And not just our forgiveness, not just seeking forgiveness from the Lord, but in terms of the way that we dispense of forgiveness uh, with one another. That is the horizontal element. Uh, forgive us our debts. Notice the word as. As we have forgiven our debtors. Now let me get a couple of things right out of the way. This is not works. Some have said this is works where they've read this uh, almost as if it's saying, Lord, forgive us because we have forgiven others. Okay, this word because is not in there. Uh, we don't, we're not forgiven because we have forgiven others. That's, that's not what's happening here. Um, we are to forgive, uh, we are asking forgiveness. Lord, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven others, not because we have forgiven others. Now, Jesus, the, one of the reasons we went to Matthew 18 this morning is because Jesus fleshes this principle out so clearly in Matthew 18. If you would turn there again with me uh, to verse 15. While you're turning there, I'll go ahead and start developing the passage. We're not going to go in depth with it, but let's get the gist of it this morning. In verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Quick observation about this. It's, it's, um, it's a church context here. Um, it's a church context here. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Um, so this is, this is amidst the church family. Someone in the church family sins against someone else. And the sin that is committed is a sin that has caused a rift in the relationship. 
You know, sometimes we're just called to bear with one another. You know, just bear with one another in love, and love co- covers a multitude of sins. And we have those, uh, we have those, uh, uh, those passages of Scripture that teach us. But sometimes a sin is committed where it just causes a wrinkle in the relationship, doesn't it? You've got this wrinkle. Now, Jesus is giving us a directive here. You've got this wrinkle in your relationship. What are you to do? Go to him or her and tell her or him their fault between you and him alone. And if they listen to you, you have gained your brother or sister. That's verse 15. But what if they don't listen? Verse 16, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If they refuse, then tell it to the church and see that the context is the church. If this involves your neighbor who isn't part of the church, well then, what what good is that going to do? What does he care if you bring two or three others along? What's he care if you bring the church along? And what does he care if you say, listen, you know, you're going to be excommunicated from the church. I don't even go to the church. So you're going to threaten me to be excommunicated to a church I don't even go, nor is it even, neither have I ever entertained going. Um, obviously, this is church life that Jesus is talking about here. But when we have this party that's refusing to repent, what happens? Verse 17, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What's that mean? Does that mean at this point now we hate them? Absolutely not. We're called to love our enemies, aren't we? So then what does it mean? Well, it means that this person who was formerly part of our fellowship, who we believe to be in a state of grace, has now proven that either they're very, very misguided at this moment or they've never been a Christian at all. So now they've become an object of evangelism. Now they've become someone who we, 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 we realize we need to evangelize them. We thought they were evangelized, but now we need, to, we need to give them the gospel. We need to evangelize them. Now, Peter in verse 21, he, he stands up and says to him, Lord, how often? How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, no, I don't say to you, Seven times, but 77 times. Here's this habit of forgiveness that we have here. No, uh, 70 70 times seven, um, or 77 times, however you want to read this. Does that mean, okay, you've got 77 times, then better not do it 78, because you do it 78, then you're out. Um, No, these sevens are numbers of completion. We're going to see them again uh, here in in the course of this message. He's saying, no, this is to be ongoing. And then he tells this story. He said, um, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, verse 23, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, you know, we, we, could, we could attempt to try to figure out what that is in modern currency. I don't want to go into that. All we need to know about that is it's a number that can't be paid. We might we could say $10 billion. I don't think there's any one of us that could come up with $10 billion in our lifetime, given our particular means. The, the point is, it's a number that we cannot repay. We will not live long enough or be prosper enough to uh, raise this amount of money. Verse 25, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, in verse 28, 
This same servant goes out, finds one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And the point here is this is an amount that can be paid. We could, we could throw numbers around. Maybe this is $10,000 or $20,000. Again, the actual number is not something that we should fuss much over. Well, most of us can make installments and we can come, we, we, we could, we could manage that. Um, this is an, it's a manageable sum of money. And here, this, this man who's been released of such a debt that he could, I mean, it's, 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 it's a, it's a mind boggling debt that he's been released from. He is now choking this man, uh, who owes him a much smaller debt. And in verse 29, his fellow servant falls down and pleads with him, have patience with me. He's doing the same thing that, you know, that, that the man who's choking him had just done with his master. Only he's getting a different result. In verse 30, uh, the servant refuses to forgive him and puts him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now trouble comes for this man in verse 31 when his fellow servants saw that what, he, that what had taken place, they're greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summons the first servant and says, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Uh, verse 35, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your Heart. Now, what is the issue? Uh, the issue here is um, this man's repentance really was just a repentance to get out of trouble. It wasn't a true saving repentance. Uh, this man's heart hasn't been changed. Because if his heart had been changed, having been forgiven of such a great debt, he would have been merciful uh, to his brother out of gratitude. And that sheds light on what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6, 12. And it sheds light on what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6, 14 and 15. Notice that in verse 12 we have, uh, back to Matthew 6, Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And then in verses 14 and 15 he says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. We can think of the, the parable we just read to flesh that out. Uh, verse 15, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, um, a question arises here. Um, and, and before we get to that question, just a couple of notes I have here that I didn't want to forget about. You know, when a person becomes a believer, he begins to recognize his sin debt. Again, we're going back to this uh, uh, economic terms that we have here. Uh, do we recognize it fully? Not in this lifetime, we don't. But as we grow in grace, we're going to recognize it more and more. But what we do recognize is we need a Savior. We need someone to come and pick up the tab. And what we do recognize is that Jesus is our Savior. He has picked up that tab. And that uh, results in our conversion. God's kindness leads us to repentance. We repent, we turn, and we become believers. And uh, having been forgiven so much, how can we now withhold so little? That is the thrust of the message here. That's the thrust of what Jesus is talking about. Now, I want to I raise a practical application of this that is really uh, tricky and has a lot of moving parts to it. And the, 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 so far, we've, we've looked at this in the context of the church, and we've seen that there's, there's some conditionality here. 
uh, in the context of the church. Uh, you, you know, in the context of the church, uh, let me use myself as an example. If I sinned against, this, uh, against you, the congregation, in such a way as to create a, a rift, uh, then one of you comes forward and says, uh, Rick, you have sinned against, you've sinned against us, and I refuse to listen to you. Well, then um, more of you need to come and talk to me. And let's suppose I continue to say, yeah, I, I refuse to listen. Well, then what's going to happen? You know, the way our church government is set up, you're going to be calling the presbytery. Now, if I refuse to repent, now this is assuming I am guilty. It isn't an imagined offense. It's a real offense that I have committed against you. And I continue to refuse to repent. Then what eventually happens? What eventually happens is I am cast out of the group, right? So you see there's a conditionality here. It's, it's, it, in this context, it's conditional. What about in the case, and much of our lives are lived, where we are sinned against, not by people in the church, but by people who are outside of the church, who refuse to repent? Should we forgive them? Or shouldn't we forgive them? And this brings us to a debate. There's a debate on this. Um, there are two views on this. There's one view known as conditional forgiveness, which is what we've been talking about. I'd like to flesh that out a little further because there's a couple different varieties of that. And there's unconditional forgiveness, and there's a number of varieties of that too. Um, and I don't want to bring any more moving parts into this than what need be, so I'm really only going to develop it. What I develop is what I'm talking about in terms of conditional forgiveness, and what I develop is what I'm talking about in terms of unconditional forgiveness. Now, what is conditional forgiveness? Forgive conditional forgiveness is this. We forgive when the other party repents. Now, where do we get that from? Um, take a look at Ephesians 4.32, if you will. Ephesians 4.32. And we could, you don't need to turn there, but there's a parallel passage to Ephesians uh, 4.32 and Galatians 3.13, but uh, they're parallel passages. If you look at Ephesians 4 and verse 32, what's the apostle saying there? What's Paul saying there? Backing up a little bit, in verse 29, he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Verse 32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, the conditional for forgiveness argument goes like this. Here you see in what the Apostle Paul is calling us to do is to forgive as God has forgiven us in Christ. Okay? And the argument goes like this. There's no repentance. There's no forgiveness. God doesn't forgive those who don't repent, right? If you don't repent, you don't get forgiven. Uh, and we are to forgive as God has forgiven in Christ. Uh, therefore, we are to forgive uh, only those who repent. That's the argument. Now, this is, this is the, this is, uh, the uh, view that I was taught in seminary, and I'm giving you kind of a, kind of a quick uh, development of that view. There's one more thing that I should bring into this is 
Um, a lot of times from a pastoral point of view, this, uh, this particular view argues that if we offer what's known as unconditional forgiveness, which is what we're going to get into here in a moment, that we could actually short-circuit the repentance process. In other words, if we offer forgiveness prematurely before there's repentance, we could be short-circuiting uh, the repentance uh, process, if you will. Um, now, that's basically conditional forgiveness. Now, what about unconditional forgiveness? Um, you know, in, in, when I prepare for sermons, I try to be really, really as thorough as time allows me to be thorough. And I will confess, prior to writing this message this morning, uh, or writing, I didn't write it this morning, writing for this morning, hardly did I write it this morning, um, in the process of thinking this through, I thought, you know, I want to take another look at unconditional forgiveness because I've held on to a conditional forgiveness view for all these years. Uh, this is a view that was taught to me. It was a view that's been advocated by some outstanding um, Bible teachers. R.C. Sproul held a, a conditional view. Um, and as soon as I started looking into it, what I found to be really interesting is um, a couple of years ago, Several years ago, at a Ligonier conference, uh, one of the uh, speakers who was uh, um, one of the keynote speakers of that conference, seminary professor, was asked this question: "Should we forgive those who don't repent?" And his one of his first words that came out of his mouth was, "Man, that's that's really a tough question." And he can, you know, I, I read the transcript. He's kind of gibbering. At, I could recognize his answer a little bit because I've been in that position where it's like you're trying to collect your thoughts and get them all together, and he's kind of jibber-jabbering a little bit, and he finally gets on his feet, and he begins to bring a few passages in, and at the very end, he goes, you know, I think we probably should forgive those who, um, who don't repent, and that was the end of his answer. And so here we have a keynote speaker at a Ligonier Ministries conference who is saying something different than the founder of Ligonier Ministries himself, R.C. Sproul. And what that shows is there indeed are two different positions here. And I, you know, I, I thought, you know, I want to take another look at this unconditional forgiveness. So I started looking at Ephesians 4.32 and Colossians 3.13. I started looking at them very carefully. And something that I've never seen before, and I want to throw this out at you, something that I've never seen before is... Uh, and this is a presupposition that I think is left unexamined here uh, by those who hold a conditional view. And it's this. Do we have a parity of condition going on in Ephesians 4.32? And that might be a little bit technical. What do I mean by that? W what I mean by that is this. What are we to imitate in Ephesians 4.32? Are we to imitate the condition by which God offers forgiveness? Or are we to imitate the grace? Now, uh, someone could say, well, we're to, we're to um, imitate both. The conditional view that I was taught would imitate both. But we're back to the question, are we to imitate the condition? Is there a parity of condition here? Well, let's think it through for a minute. How does God forgive sinners? He forgives sinners through the instrumentality of the method of salvation that he has devised in Christ, right? He forgives sinners because, and he can forgive sinners only because he has come in the person of Jesus Christ. 
So God has forgiven sinners because of Jesus Christ. God is not compromising his justice and his holiness in any way as he forgives sinners because he has a vehicle to take that sin away. That sin is given to Jesus. Jesus takes the penalty for that sin. Jesus' righteousness is given to the sinner, and it's through this that God is able to forgive sins. That's the condition. I can't see how we can possibly imitate that. I don't see how we can parity that because we have a, di we have a different condition. Whereas God forgives sinners through the atoning work of Christ. We forgive those who sin against us out of gratitude for what Christ has done. I don't think that view is accurate. I've only had three days to work it through. I reserve the right to change my mind that three days is not a long time. And I thought about, you know, Rick, let's teach a psalm. Let's go to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man, you know. And I thought, no, you know what? Ah, let's just think it through and throw it out there. I know some of you hold a conditional view, and uh, um, I've held it for a long time. Um, I, I, but I don't think we have a parity. We, we have to have a parity of condition here, I think. Um, and um, no question, neither view should question mercy. Is there a thrust of mercy? If you look at Ephesians and you look at the context of Ephesians, I mean, chapter 1 is glorious. My goodness, what are we talking about? The blessings we have in Christ. This is all of grace. Chapter 2, verse 5, we were, we were dead in our trespasses and we've been made alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. Here we have this whole thing of grace, this whole, you know, the context is grace, and, and then we're, we're told, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God has forgiven us, as, as God in Christ forgave us. You, you, have this, you have this idea of grace. There's no question that grace is in here. There's no question about that. You know, at one point in Jesus' ministry, I think there's a... There's a point where, this is quite instructive, where, you know, the paralytic is led down through the panels of the roof, you know, and here he is on his mat, he can't move, and, and, and what does Jesus take up with him first? He says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And what does his detractors say immediately? Who is this who forgives sins? You see, and what do we learn from that? We learn that, that only God can forgive sins in this way. You see, there's a way that God does it, and there's a way that we're called to do it, and they're two different things, aren't they? Christ Can Christ forgive sins? Yeah, he's the one who's picking the tab up. He can forgive any sin he wants. He's the surety. That's not us, though, is it? That's not us. So I don't think we have a parity of condition here. These conditions are different, and this leads me to believe we have a, a parity of mercy, not condition. Okay, let's flesh this out a little bit further. What's in view here is mercy. It's grace. Um, you don't need to turn here because you know the passage really well, but my memory is not so good this morning. It's failing me on a number of places, and I don't trust it. I'm going to look it up, Luke 23, 34. In verse 33, you don't need to turn there, just listen. In verse 33, Jesus is being crucified. A criminal on one side, 
uh, criminal on the other side. And in verse 34 reads this way. Jesus says as he's being crucified, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And there they cast lots to divide his garments. Now, do we have repentant parties at that point in time? I've always taken this verse as Jesus speaking out of his human nature. He's speaking out of his humanity. And what is he doing here? I think what he's doing here is he's setting an example. And it's an example that is followed by Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Uh, Acts 7, verse, uh, uh, it's almost the end, probably verse 59 and 60, if memory serves me right. Uh, verses 59 and 60. Now, uh, in terms of context, Stephen is preaching the gospel. They can't stand it as they're hearing these things. They're enraged. They grind their teeth. That's verse 54. Full of the Holy Spirit. Spirit uh, uh, Stephen gazes into heaven. He sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So he sees Jesus and they cry out with a loud voice and they stop their ears. They rush together at him and they cast him out of the city and they begin to stone him. And, and in verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, and he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Have they repented? No, they're continuing to throw stones. He's still alive. They throw stones at him until he is dead. Uh, what is Stephen doing? It's a tremendous act of grace. He's imitating Jesus on the cross, is he not? Is my logic sound, sound to you so far? Um, did they all repent? No. No. Um, now, we could theologize this, but let's, let's, I think that's where we're getting into trouble a little bit. Let's not just try. I had a seminary professor one time, Dr. Kinnear. We got to be friends. He was a cool guy. He used to like the off-road and jeeps and stuff, you know. And, and um, a cool guy, just a cool guy. Um, I've wanted to bring it, I've wanted to have him come down and preach, but his health hasn't been so well. But he used to warn, quit theologizing. He'd ask questions of text. Okay, what's this text mean? He would ask class, and everyone would start theologizing the text. He would say, stop it. Don't theologize. You're going to get in trouble doing that. Stop. What's the plain meaning of the text? Let's try to stop theologizing. Mark 11.25. Mark 11.25. This is a very instructive text here. In Mark 11:25, Jesus says, "Whenever you stand praying, that's relevant to Mark 12, isn't it? Or to Matthew 12, or Matthew 6, verse 12. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses." Now, I think it would be a, 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 a an exegetical stretch to try to read, you know, if he repents into that passage. But someone might say from the other side, and I can hear him saying from the other side, well, bring in Luke 17. Bring in Luke 17, because you have to take Scripture, and any, 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 any interpretation of one passage has to stand the scrutiny of the rest. That's correct, isn't it? All right, well, Luke 17. Let's go to Luke 17. Let's try to figure this out. Luke 17. Verse 3, what's Jesus say there? Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Now the word brother is being used here again. And we could say, well, this is referring to the, we're back to the church context, and we've already established that. Um, but, and someone will say, look, you have to have repentance. You have to have repentance, you see. 
for forgiveness to take place. We have to have repentance for reconciliation to take place. Does that mean that we have to have forgiveness or that we have to have repentance for forgiveness to take place? Is forgiveness an exact synonym for reconciliation? This is something we need to wrestle with here. I think in some contexts it may be, but in other contexts it obviously is not. Why? Look at verse 4. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, I've always taken that to say, listen, this is to be ongoing. This repentance is, if they repent, you forgive them. If they repent, you forgive them. But I think there's another way we can look at this. Okay, tomorrow morning, <laughs> we're at the workplace. We're doing a 12-hour shift, and someone sins against you in such a way that it's under your skin, and you take them up on it. Say, come on. Um, you've just sinned against me. And they say, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm, I'm, please forgive me. Okay, you got it. And 20 minutes later, they do it again. All right, no, no problem. No problem, you're forgiven. An hour later, they do it again. Now, what are you thinking at this point? Is this repentance genuine? All right, we go to lunch. We come back, and we're not, we're not back from lunch for 15 minutes, and they do it again. And you confront them, and they're like, oh, I'm sorry. What do we say to them? Okay, that's, that's your, what, third, fourth time? I'm losing track. You only get eight. Is that, is that, is that, what, is that what we say? Jesus says, no, you you got to keep forgiving him. The fact of the matter is, it's not so much the repentance that's in view in this text. What's in view in this text is the habit of forgiveness. I think. What do you think? And I think that's why the apostle, that's why the apostle objects. The apostles are feeling the weight of this and they're saying, Lord, in verse 5, increase our faith. I think that's what's going on there. Now, um, You know, I don't think we should be concerned about the genuineness of the repentance. Again, that's slippery. I told you there's a lot of moving parts here. Here's one moving part. Let's put this in the context of an abused wife. Her abuser abuses her. He says he's sorry. She forgives him. He does it again. He says he's sorry. His abuse will oftentimes become greater and greater and greater. You know, eventually her, her life becomes endangered. Does she act like nothing ever happened? No. There, there are some views of unconditional forgiveness that basically go like this. We're going to act like nothing ever happened. That's not biblical. That's not biblical. Um, that's touching on consequences. You see, there are consequences. Okay, he cheats on her. She forgives him, patches the, tries to patch things back up. He cheats on her again. She forgives him. But she also tells him she's suing him for divorce. That's a consequence. Another situation, um, you got seven friends. We're using a lot of sevens as you seven. Seven friends, group of friends. They're so close. They've gone through college together. They're so close that they're like siblings. Two of them 
end up getting a rift with each other, and it causes a, a whole break in the whole dynamic of this whole circle. Now, five of them are really missing the dynamic, while these two won't even be together. And the other five are saying, listen, why can't you just knock it off and just get back to normal? In other words, act like nothing ever happened. Is that biblical? No. That's pop psychology. That's Dr. Phil kind of stuff. And it's worldly because it's selfish. The other five, rather than taking a notice in what has actually happened and trying to bring true reconciliation to play, just wants their dynamic back. I just want my dynamic fixed. I just want to, you know, we just want things to be like they were. Why? Because they enjoyed it that way. You see, they're thinking about themselves. That's why we can't just loosely embrace any one of these, um, uh, one of these views until we know exactly what we're talking about. Romans 12, 14. Romans 2, 4. You don't need to turn to Romans 2, 4, but turn to Romans 12, 14. I've already quoted Romans 2, 4 because I want to move on to something else here uh, really quickly. Um, you know, the conditional view says, listen, if you start, if you start forgiving people uh, unconditionally, Okay, they sin against you and you forgive them. Why do you forgive them? You forgive them because Jesus has told you to forgive them. Um, and you start forgiving people unconditionally, then you're going to short-circuit the repentance process. Okay? There, 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 many of you have heard this before. Um, let's try, let's, let's test that. Would we actually, I mean, is that conclusive? Would we actually be short-circuiting the repentance process? I don't think, not necessarily, because we're told in Romans 2, 4 that it's God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance, right? And let's think about it. Let's, let's go back to the condition that God, God's condition for salvation is repentance, right? But where does the repentance come from? Does it come from ourselves? Well, we're the ones that repent. Don't get that confused. But who gave you the ability to repent? And when you were given the ability to repent, were you repentant then? The answer is no. You were an enemy then. God converts your heart, regenerates your heart, and out of this new heart, you see your sin debt, you see the beauty of Christ, you confess your sins. If you don't confess your sins, it's... it's, it's, it's it's indicative that your heart hasn't been changed. But if you confess your sins to God and you embrace Jesus as your Savior, that's indicative that God has given you a new heart. But my question is, when did he give you that new heart? And before the repentance came, came the new heart. And we're told in Romans 2.4 that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. It's his kindness. Yes, yeah, his kindness coming to his enemies and giving them new hearts. And in chapter 12, verse 14... Paul says there, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Are these repentant folks? I doubt it. Um, verse 19, or verse 17, repay no one e evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's an important piece of this puzzle, I think. As you can tell, I'm leaning towards an unconditional view. Um, 
What do we do with the guilt? You know, what do we do with the guilt? What do we do with that? Okay, the party's unrepentant. You know, a gunman goes into a house of worship and he takes nine lives in 2015, right? Charlestown. Um, and remarkably, that community of people offered forgiveness to that gunman. Why? Well, I think it's because vengeance belongs to the Lord. No one's going to get away with anything, are they? Yeah, again, I'm thinking this through. You know, a major position like this, I mean, we could have preached on Psalm 1. Would you rather heard about Psalm 1 this morning? But I'd like to have three months with this, you know, but I had three days. That's the problem about preaching through the books. You don't get three months when you're preaching through the books. You don't get three months to think about a subject and then preach that subject. You get a week. Um, you don't get a week either because you got more to do than a week. Sometimes you get a couple of days. That's it. Um, but I think that um, with what Paul's saying here, okay, someone has sinned against me. They haven't repented. What am I to do with them? I'm going to treat them. I'm going to be tender-hearted to them. I'm to be to treat them with kindness. I'm to love them. I'm to pray for them. I'm to, this doesn't mean I'm going to send them a. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to send them a Christmas card. It doesn't necessarily. It doesn't mean I'm going to invite them over for Thanksgiving dinner. But it does mean that I'm going to be meeting them with kindness. Now, how can I do this? Well, here's the thing. I should be longing for their salvation. Now, let me step back for a minute. The conditional view that I've held all these days would say yes to all of that. You know, there's a pop psychology view that says you should forgive the unrepentant because that would be the best thing for you. Because if you hold on to all this bitterness, it's going to be cancerous to you, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I call that a pop psychology view because it's man-centered. Is there truth to it? Yeah. Holding on to bitterness? Holding on to bitterness is... Sinful? Is, will, it be, will it be cancerous? Yes. But it's a pop psychology view in the respect that I think we're being told to forgive here because Jesus is telling us to forgive. That's a better reason, isn't it? I, 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 think, it's a, I think it's a better reason. Uh, Never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. If this party doesn't repent then they're going to die in their sins. And what we should be longing for, regardless of which position we end up, is for their repentance. Um, no, Paul's saying the same thing that, that Jesus says in Matthew 25. If the enemy's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And that's the point I want to make. Is offering forgiveness immediately or as soon as we possibly can, going to short-circuit repentance. I don't think so, according to verse 20. Because in being kind, what are we doing? Paul uses this phrase of heaping burning coals on their heads. Now, that might be what we want to do at the start, you know? We'd like to get the burning coals, and we'd like to dump them on their heads ourselves, right? Literally. Depending on what they've done to us. A drunk driver kills half your family. You realize the implications of this? 
He takes your wife and children or your husband and children away from you and you're to forgive him? If, one of, if, if, if this line of thought is true, then the answer is yes. That's staggering, isn't it? If he repents, either way, yes. If he repents, yes. But what about if he doesn't repent? I'm thinking yes. I'm thinking yes. I, I think so. Does that remove the consequences from this person? No, they're probably going to go to jail. Well, what if they only do 18 months and they're back out? Is that fair? No. No, it's an injustice. What do we do with that? Harbor bitterness? A conditional view would not have allowed for that. The conditional view that I've held for all these years, no, you don't harbor business. Um, the, unconditional, the unconditional view here is saying you just let it go and you leave that up to the Lord. It, in other words, will justice eventually be done in this universe? And the answer to that question is going to be yes. Um, so enough about that for this morning. Amen? I mean, if anyone has any questions, because of the nature of this sermon, this is not normally what I do, uh, but I don't normally change positions on doctrines like this either. Um, and I'm not saying uh, necessarily, I'm, I don't think three days is adequate. And I thought about Psalm 1. And I could do Psalm 1 without probably any, I could probably stand here and do Psalm 1 without any preparation. And uh, we could table this. But I thought maybe it would be good for us all to work through it together. Um, so um, before we, you know, before we, um, we leave, I should probably take questions if anyone has any questions. So with that, I'll conclude the sermon and uh, pray and we can sing a, um, we can sing a song. And if anyone has any questions, you can feel free to ask, okay? Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we come before you, Father, and we must come before you with hearts that are willing to follow wherever your word leads. And uh, Father, um, we know there are, are really outstanding Bible teachers who um, have taught that, you know, the forgiveness is really not to be offered until there's repentance. So, Father, we come trembling, but, Father, um, we do have some questions surrounding Ephesians 4.32, Colossians 3.13, Lord, that do shed some light. And the greatest of Bible teachers, I could even use R.C. Sproul as an example. R.C. Sproul used to say there's, there's an element of error in everyone's teaching. That was something that he would say, and he meant that that... that that uh, applied to him as well. Oh, Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is the only human being who's ever preached without error. The rest of us have. It's an uncomfortable thought. But, oh, Father, take us where your word leads us, Father. We're desiring that your will be done. We're studying the very prayer, thy will be done. We do desire, Lord. I think I can speak for everyone in this room this morning. We desire to align our hearts with your word. So, Father, we pray that you would be pleased, O Lord, to take us where your word leads us. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.